Rome wasn't built in a day, and it didn't crumble in a day either. It is the shining example of one of the most innovative periods in human history, with roads and public baths for better hygiene and representative governments, and then it all turned to custard. Professor Greg Wolfe is one of the world's leading authorities on ancient Rome. In fact, he's considered royalty in the world of classical studies. He's in New Zealand speaking around the country about the nature of empires, why Roman creativity seemed to run dry, and how the past can help us to understand the present. Professor Greg Wolfe joins me now from Christchurch. Hey there. Hello. It's good to talk. Yeah, nice to talk to you. You've been brought here by the Sir Ronald Syme Lecture Series at Victoria University, held every two years in his honour. He actually may not be a household name for many of our listeners. Can you tell us about that boy from Taranaki who became one of the most eminent historians of the Roman Empire? Sure. He's definitely a household name among ancient historians. He's <laughs> probably one of the most distinguished in the English-speaking world wow. and um, a knighthood and an order of merit. And yeah, for those not familiar with the British honours system, the order of merit is chosen personally by the monarch. You never have more than 24 at any one time. So it really is a super honour. And um, he rewrote endless fields of Roman history and went to Oxford. He studied at Auckland and at... Um, at Vic, and then went on to Oxford in his mid-twenties. A year later, he published an article in the main journal of the, of the field. Um, a year after that, he got a permanent job in an Oxford college. He went on to, had a bit of a break in the war. We don't know quite what he was doing in the Balkans and Ankara. He'd never talk about it afterwards hmm. under Istanbul, and then came back to a chair, the, the big chair of Roman history in Oxford, and just had a huge influence on the field. And I never met him, but um, uh, virtually everybody I worked with when I did work in Oxford or who taught me was a pupil of his. And so I felt like his his, his ghost hmm. was from walking around this ancient town, sort yeah. of still directing the studies of people who uh, were left after him. It was an amazing figure. And now you've followed that ghost to New Zealand. Why ancient Absolutely. Rome? What is it about people who lived thousands of years ago that keeps you people like you and Sir Ronald and others, so engaged? Well, it's not the only interesting civilization. There are many fascinating civilizations, but it's such a big bit of our collective past. I mean, the world's collective past that um, we're constantly redirected to it. You go to cities founded by Romans, you look at buildings there, you walk around any city, you know, walking around Christchurch where I'm at the moment, and you see bits of architecture that are the legacy of Roman civilization, you know, passed on by many others through medieval Renaissance and others. And th yeah, this is true if you walk around bits of Seoul or if you walk around Philadelphia. I mean, the whole world has got little bits of Rome around it, and it's natural perhaps for us to want to understand that, and um, perhaps natural also to to wonder what the what what's covered up by because we have all these wonderful texts which we don't have for many civilizations dating back thousands of years and they present their view of things so a lot of us are sort of engaged in working out what they're not telling us we have almost no female voices we have very few voices of the millions of enslaved people who who worked in these in different bits of the roman world roman economy so so partly it's about sort of looking at our roots like every people want mm. to look at their roots and partly it's about 
try, try not trying to get below the surface, trying to dig beneath their self-presentation, work out the the sort of, you know, the seedy underbelly, if you like. And that's what Ronald Simon was really great at, because he inherited discipline where people from the 19th century really admired the Roman order, Roman law. And, and he wrote this extraordinary book in the 30s, which said, well, Rome's not really like that. That's just a cover. <laughs> it's really a conspiracy. It's a bunch of powerful families who are running things for their own interests. But yeah, okay, he's right it when Mussolini is running Italy and Hitler's on the rise in, in Germany. But he's one of the first people who said, Look, they're not that admirable, the Romans. Yeah, mm. there's some pretty pretty sinister stuff there so i mean all these things make it fascinating and and then all the new information that's constantly being generated by archaeology by by bioscience all these sort of things you know whether that's you know trade with india or whether it's looking at uh, stable isotopes in people's skeletons to work at how much people moved about in the roman <laughs> empire so there's there's lots and lots of new stuff all the time as you say, archaeologists still discovering new things from the era, particularly the era, the era when emperors ruled Rome. How big was that discovery a couple of years ago when they made when they uh, found the remains of a former slave who actually seemed to have risen through the social ranks outside Pompeii? Uh, we've known about people a bit like that for a while, but actually seeing the individual story of somebody—that's really extraordinary. And what's also extraordinary, perhaps, is that I mean, it's, it's the similarities and differences with with you know, most most modern slavery. I mean, the last couple of hundred years has been based on ideas about race differences, and um, they didn't exist in the ancient world. They didn't have a notion of race, and more or less everybody would have looked about the same. Mm-hmm. And so, people who are not just of descended from or formerly slaves themselves but are actually proud to to announce this on their monuments like that guy and to say hey look i started as a slave and now look at me look what i can <laughs> afford to give to my adopted city so that that opened up a window into quite how different perce- perceptions were which is important to think about when we think about people who are descended from enslaved populations today can we blame Shakespeare for some of the popular popular notions about that empire? You talked about a sort of a reappraisal in the early 20th century. I guess a lot of us got our um, impressions of ancient Rome from fiction rather than fact or from accounts that were actually written hundreds of years after the events. Oh, still do, yes. I mean, there's still people who, you know, the, the Gladiator sequel is arousing a lot of interest among people <laughs> at the moment. and. There's even a few old timers remember Monty Python, the Holy Grail, you know, and Monty Python's Life of Brian. So yeah, I mean, fiction's around there too. Um, Shakespeare's better than most in a way because he was working off an English translation of a French translation of lives of ancient Romans written by Plutarch, who actually lived in the Roman Empire. So one of the things you discover when you when you train when you study classical studies, as people do in many universities, is you. You get, hey, isn't this Shakespeare? No, he ripped it off. Yeah, that's much earlier. So, 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 so Shakespeare's pretty good fiction compared to some of the stuff. Yeah. Well, seeing as you mentioned Monty Python, I did have this clip from Life of Brian ready to go when rebels looking to attack Rome talk about how much they hate the Romans. Uh, let's take a listen. They bled us white, the bastards. They taken everything we had. And not just from us. From our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yeah, all right, Stan, don't labour the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct. What? 
aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. That's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct and sanitation are two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Education. Yeah, yeah, all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's something we'd really miss, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! So... How accurate is the Monty Python picture of Rome as it went from Republic to Empire? I think, I mean, Monty Python are wonderful and they used Rome as a way of talking about all those different groups that criticise current day events and the idea of lots of different rebel groups more involved with fighting each other than something than the Romans is something which, um, yeah, we can think about freedom rights in Africa or in the Caribbean or in uh, Central America or the north of Ireland and um, hear echoes of that in, in, in their stuff. So, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's never intended to be an accurate portrayal. It's like a lot of use of the classics in fiction. It's a way of telling us something about ourselves, just like the use of robots in science fiction is a way of telling us about something about ourselves. And it's that, presumed familiarity between their world and ours that makes that a, a good way to talk about things that would be awkward and uncomfortable to talk about straight. I'm talking to Professor Greg Wolf, a visitor to New Zealand, talking about the nature of empires, ancient Rome, and, and what happened in Rome, really. Did Roman citizens take a lot of what Rome offered for granted, things like the roads and the representative governments, um and openness to foreigners? I think it varied from time to time. And we're looking at the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire itself starts maybe 5th century BC, and 15th century AD. It's 2,000 years. So obviously, it changed a bit over time. Um, Roman citizens in the period where Rome's really expanding, they get enriched by empire. They sign up their soldiers, and they get shared the booty. Um, when Rome starts getting revenues of empire coming in and enriches citizens by funding public contracts, which they take up, so they, they beautify their cities, they get paid for beautifying them for the re- rewards of empire, and they and then they enjoy living in them, uh, paid for by empire. Rome actually abolishes income tax in 167 BCE because it doesn't need to tax people anymore because it gets so much from conquest. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that gives some idea about why why your ordinary Roman citizen would have felt Roman Empire, Roman imperialism is is a wholly good thing. And they also thought the gods had decreed it. They had no, they had no post-colonial anxieties. They thought they got it because the gods recognised they were... Mm-hmm the most pious people and because they were the most virtuous people. And of course, that meant when things went wrong, as they did occasionally, they would say, hey, what did we do wrong? Who's not being virtuous? Is it to do with the vices, the laziness of the emperors? Or is it to do with the the elite getting too too rich and, and corrupt? Or at some point when, when 
problems happen in the end of the Vatican picture with the German invasion is people say, hey, maybe this converting to Christianity wasn't such a smart move after all. <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why it's happened. Maybe the traditional gods are crossed with us. Um, so I don't know they took things for granted, but they certainly felt entitled and they certainly felt that this was something that was owed to, they were the master race. They were the Gens Togata, the people who wear the toga. And they should be in charge. And if they weren't in charge, something was wrong. You talk about the conquests. Um, I wonder, morality aside of the rights and wrongs of this ever-expanding empire, that melting pot um, had to be pretty good for innovation, right? Um, they, As I said, they embraced foreigners, and presumably that's part of the secret source that's let Rome achieve so much. Yes, Rome expands really rapidly, and then it begins to pick up stuff from the people it's conquered, and that means... Yeah, marble statuary from the Greek world, because most of the natural marble outcrops in the Mediterranean or in the Eastern Mediterranean. It means kinds of weaponry from Spaniards and Gauls. Um, as they expand into new territories, they start cultivating things. So you know, olive oil is particularly grown in North Africa once Rome take because that's where it's warm and olives are very intolerant of the cold. So as Romans take over what we would think of as sort of you know, the North African trip from Morocco all the way to Egypt. So they take over these industries and build them up and start consuming more of this stuff. So yeah, Rome, Rome benefits from this. It didn't, as far as I can see, it doesn't value cosmopolitanism in the way that European empires in the 19th and 20th century, they often, you know, they would come home and people would build a palace in a sort of vaguely orientalizing style, or they would, um, yeah, in the UK, notoriously, our national dish is curry, and and this is you know, yeah. brought in from, of course, from areas of East Asia that was dominated by the British. And Romans didn't do that. I, mean, mm. I once read through the whole of the only surviving Roman cookbook, looking for traces <laughs> of their appreciation of foods of empire. Yeah. Nothing. No, <laughs> they like to know where stuff came from, but you, you never get someone saying, "Hey, look." When I was governor in Portugal, we discovered this great fish dish and I brought it back to Rome. Just didn't happen. They were <laughs> supremely confident that their way of doing stuff was the best. Great. So, yeah, they took over technical innovations, but they, they, they certainly weren't interested in being multiculturalists. I wonder if Aucklanders listening who, uh, well, actually New Zealanders around the country, um, but I'm thinking of Aucklanders who have been arguing about whether or not to build a waterfront stadium or a second harbour crossing and what it should look like and whether it should be above or below ground, they might be comforted to hear that Romans used to argue about these big projects as well, right? Absolutely, yeah. They 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 argued about whether to build theatres. For a long time, they thought they shouldn't build a theatre, even though there were ones all over the Greek world because it was, it was not sufficiently Roman and it was maybe a bit softer. They put up, they put up temporary theatres every year and then take them down again after the games were over. And eventually they're putting up temporary theatres built out of marble and then taking them down again, all the marble. So imagine how expensive that <laughs> is. I mean, cost was no object. And then you, d and then they do get points where they just suddenly all change their mind about something. And this has particularly in the Roman Empire. That's what I talk about in my Simon lecture, is that d d while Roma's expanding, it's got the funds to rebuild its culture repeatedly. So they can do something like say, hey, look, all these wonderful statues of the gods we've got made of intricately fired terracotta. So they fire all the bits of the statue separately, reassemble them, paint them bright colours, put them on the roofs of the temples, and then 
I should wake up one morning and think, this stuff's horrible. We'll just get rid of it all and replace it with marble. Even if that means importing not only marble, but the sculptors from the other end of the Mediterranean. And they did this several times with different things. So, they, 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 yeah, they debated things. And they, I mean, they're a good model for us in a way as a culture which considers what it wants and remodels it. Now, we wouldn't want our, our new world to be based on plunder. But it's good, I think, for societies occasionally to sit down and think, what are our values? Are, are we sure mm-hmm. about what we like? I mean, should, should, yeah, should we change? Should we change the school syllabus? Should we, should we decorate our cities differently? I mean, yeah, my, my, this is my first visit to New Zealand, and I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. And I've been really struck, amazing museums like Te Papa and so on, the Otago Museum, and thinking, gosh, New Zealand's a, a very confident country, mm-hmm. which is really remodelling its relationship to its past, its culture in a way that. I wish the UK did a bit more often. And um, I think, you know, ancient Rome, which, again, remodelled its culture, re- renegotiated its view of the past. Um, that, 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 that's something we can admire about Romans, I think. Lots of things we can't, but that I think we can admire about. Oh, that's a great compliment, thank you, particularly for a uh, country that has historically been painted as a little self-conscious, um, nervous, cultureless, cultural cringe, that sort of thing. Um, but to Rome, and there is never really a revolution. It's more of an evolution, and um, according to to you, and and I wonder, were the rulers of Rome over the years just sort of slow to recognise that the people they were ruling were changing? I think it's. I think one of the things that we forget is how difficult it is to communicate over long distances in the past, and as time went on as the Roman polity got bigger and bigger. So from the early first century BC, virtually everybody in the peninsula of Italy is a Roman citizen. Um, 200 years later, virtually everybody in the Roman Empire is a Roman citizen. And those early moments where everyone could get together and decide that they hated terracotta and love marble, these became rarer and rarer because it became much more difficult to communicate with everybody. And now we can evolve new styles and ideas over the internet or before that TV. Yeah, even even telegraphs are you know, they're late nineteenth century inventions. So the Roman Empire experienced the tyranny of distance long before modern countries did. And I think once Romans are everywhere, you can't really take to bits the cultural package in the same way. The Empress can't write out and say, right, you're not going to read the works of Virgil anymore, you're going to read a better, newer epic. Um that's not really possible. So I think Rome is a sort of dynamic society undergoing lots of cultural revolutions when it when its leaders all live close together around the city of Rome. But as the Roman state ends up being a state with 60 million people, but they live so far apart it can take 60 days for a message to get from one end of the empire, let's say Upper Egypt, to the other, let's say York. Um, at that point, culture just has to evolve slowly on local lines and... And there's there's no one in the steering seat anymore, and I think that's that's why Roman Empire isn't very like big modern globalized empires because it's 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 become so extensive it can't have a conversation with itself hmm. anymore. If we look at politics in 2023, it's deeply weird. Uh, American politics is at the leading edge. Are, are we dealing with um, political issues? I'm talking about all the usual suspects, polarisation and so forth, that 
that have never been seen before, or or is there something that we can learn or 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 see reflected in the modern society in ancient Rome? Uh, in many ways, it's really different, Jesse. Um, and certainly, some of the modern polarizations are very twentieth century, aren't yeah. they? I mean, you still look, but. But I mean, one thing that that yeah, Roman historians are often reminded of is about the rise of populism. So when we hear mm-hmm. you know, Bolsonaro or or Trump or Boris Johnson in my own mm-hmm. country and, and yeah, others around the world appealing to a mass support over the heads of the of the of the rest of the the rest of the elected establishment, yeah, I, I can hear echoes there of. Of Romans doing the same, whether that's in the Republic, people like the Gracchi who said, "Well, the Senate's not going to pass our legislation, so we'll just go out to public assemblies and and get it passed there, not even talk to other senators about it." And both of them ended up being murdered by fellow senators as a result. Or even um, Nero, the Emperor Nero, who is remembered very negatively, but it looks like he, in some ways, wanted to sort of appeal directly to the Roman people. Meaning the people in the city of Rome, and to win them on his side with his own version of, of what Roman cult, and yeah, he he also ended up being hounded out of power. But so yeah, I mean, I think that sense that what if one person has got a really powerful voice and doesn't have any principles and is prepared to go to the masses, not all the masses, but a big chunk of the masses. I mean, that's something which yeah, we've been worrying about, I guess, in Europe since since the 30s, when Syme wrote his Roman Revolution, suggesting in some way that the rise of the first emperor, Augustus, wasn't very different to the rise of fascist parties. But we should still worry about it now in the, in the 2020s, where in significant bits of the world, places we thought rule of law institutions are very, very well-founded, Remember how we braggy we got when the when the war came down, and we said, "Well, liberal democracy is going to win now that mm. you know, communism's had its day, tyranny's over for now, and everything is going to be like the West." But it doesn't look so great right now, does it? Uh, well, Greg, it's lovely to have you in New Zealand. Thank you for bringing your passion and excitement for ancient Rome to us, and enjoy the rest of your time in our country. Thank you very much. I'm sure I shall. I've been given a wonderful welcome here and I'm really enjoying it.